Hi, everyone. This is Olga Mack, working from home, building the future of contracts. And today I'm with my very good friend, Catherine. I've known Catherine for a long time. Catherine, please introduce yourself. Hi, thanks, Olga. Um, I'm Catherine McGregor. I'm a consultant, um, content creator, um, trainer in the legal profession. Um, I've been working in law for 15 years, mostly in the publishing side. Um, but prior to that, my background was actually in the creative arts, teaching drama and performance at universities. What a fantastic background. You and I met um, a few years back when you interviewed me for, um, as a, when I was a general counsel, when you interviewed me for one of the legal publications. And then you interviewed me a few more times yes. as I progressed through my career. And um, it always amazed me, um, one, you're a fantastic writer. And two, what amazed me is how, um, you know, what I thought was a, from my point of view, a mediocre interview and how well you've been able to tease out um, various points. Um, it, you actually, um, you know, it, it, it was just a very satisfying experience. One of the more satisfying experiences of being interviewed. So thank you for that. Oh, no, well, I'm glad. And I just, you know, I do love meeting people, hearing their stories. So I um, find it fascinating just connecting with, with people all around the world. So since you've interviewed me in the past, you interviewed, turns out, many more general counsel. Tell us about this adventure. One of the things that I've been doing since I started my own company is working towards um, getting lots of the ideas I've had over the years in the various magazines and interviews all together to um, come up with my first book. Uh, which is here, and mm -hmm. it's called Business Thinking in Practice for In-House Counsel, Taking Your Seat at the Table. Essentially, the idea behind it is looking at some of key ideas in business, um, but then showing how these ideas have been influential in legal departments, and then, you know, by extension to the rest of the profession. But the focus is very much on, on in-house legal teams. Um, and part of the reason for that, Olga, is that initially, um, some years ago, when I became sort of interested in the intersection of business thinking with the law, it seemed to me that it was the in-house teams that were the most receptive to these ideas and were really interested. Um, because I guess, to put it simply, you know, their roles are less focused on being lawyers and they have to think a lot more about many of these um, notions that are shaping the wider business, um, of, you know, shaping the, the, the reality of their organisation. So that was really the, it's, it's sort of been a long time coming in terms of the ideas, but really it's something I've just been writing over the last year or so. Yeah, I, I am too. I have a copy of your book. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. Um, and um, I, it's, it, it, it really has a lot of useful information. I, I love uh, how you organize the chapters from uh, sort of purpose to culture to leadership talent. My favorite one is creativity. So I definitely want to talk to you about that. And collaboration is my, probably my second favorite chapter just because I spent quite a lot of time this day in collaboration. And we'll have a webinar uh, related to collaboration but um, where you can have talk more about it. But creativity is where I want to talk a little bit more. Uh, but before we get into it, so you mentioned that in-house lawyers 
are very open to the business um, ideas. Um, I've, I've for a long time have been telling folks that it is the in-house lawyers that will transform the practice of law, the delivery of law and consumption of law. Um, and I, I, I've been fortunate enough to be an in-house lawyer as this is happening. And I'm yeah. really grateful for that opportunity and the opportunity to go on the business side um, as this is happening. But I'm just curious as, as, a, as a kind of a little bit more of an observer, why do you think um, that in-house lawyers are so uniquely positioned uh, to make an impact in law? Well, I think it's really because the way they're thinking is much more, it has to mirror the trends that have been shaping big business. And I think, you know, many other observers and indeed people in the industry have noticed that law can be very slow in, you know, keeping pace with many of the trends in business. And I think it's just the nature of the fact that they're embedded in organizations that are thinking about these things that really, if the lawyers don't think about it, they're gonna be left behind. And I think in the, in the older, you know, sort of 10, 20 years ago, that was why you had the stereotype of the in-house lawyer being somebody who hadn't made it in a law firm and the in-house legal department being the department of no. And I think that's changing a lot. And I think that's partly because we've got a new generation of general counsel, many of whom are incredibly creative, talented people who are choosing to go in-house and seeing these, these great opportunities to do something different and do something you know, quite radical with bringing together business ideas, processes, practices, with the work of a lawyer. Um, and I think that those trends are of course now beginning to shape the wider industry. Um, and I'm, I pretty much think that in 10 years, the industry is going to look quite different and it will be partly because of the experiences and the opinions and the ideas of in-house lawyers who are currently practicing today. I'm with you. You most definitely sing my song. Uh, I, I, I love it. And um, I guess maybe help me understand, um, you know, why do you think in-house lawyers need to know about business skills? Um, you know, it is good that they're innovative and that they're progressive and they're leading the change. Uh, but, but kind of why, you know, they clearly have many legal skills because that's table stakes. But why business skills? Well, I think it's really because they're not just lawyers, um, they're business leaders who happen to have legal training. And understanding some of these ideas which may have shaped the thinking of their CEO or their COO are just really helping them take their seat at the table and be seen as a peer, not being seen as a legal technician or somebody we just call in when there's some kind of issue or, or problem. Um, you know, or some kind of governance um, matter going on that, you know, they're very much there as a colleague who's going to shape the strategy. Um, and I think that, you know, we're seeing that collaborative approach with other members of the C-suite more and more. If I can talk about one of the case studies, um, in our purpose case study, which is the Crown Estate, which is actually a very small legal team and an incredibly, I mean, it's actually 
it, it's it's basically the the company that looks after the Queen of England's interests. So um, you know, it's um, it's one of the few companies that that sort of you know handbook dates back to 1066, literally. So they have a but they have a very wide and interesting portfolio, but a very small legal team. Then UGC came into role probably about five six years ago and really decided that purpose was something he needed to focus on for his team. And he came up with this in collaboration with the CEO. He went to her and he said, look, I want to basically build you an outstanding legal team that will match the transformation you're doing in the wider organization. So we can very much see that we've got this generation of general counsel who are thinking like business people. Some of that's been organic. Some of them may have done executive training but in some sense, I want my book to be a bit of a stepping stone if you're starting to think that way or you have been thinking that way and you just want validation that other folks are on the same journey. Um, but then also just being able to detail some of the books and some of the ideas that are used in business school and, and you know, sort of give you a little taster. Obviously, you can then go away and may maybe read Peter Drucker or Simon Sinek or... Uh, um, you know, um, Gillian Tett, whoever it may be. So um, I really wanted to give people both a taste of the business ideas that maybe unconsciously are already shaping the way they're thinking, but also give them illustrative examples of what their peers are doing, um, you know, just really to show it makes sense, you know, this is, this is not just you having these thoughts about does my legal team need a purpose or do I need to work on culture? other folks are, are going through the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a collective experience to change the future of law. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you may feel like even if you're the department of one lawyer who's sort of dealing with this alone, it's actually a collective experience to change expectations of what in-house lawyers do, what law is and, and how it should be consumed. Um, I, when I look through the book, you know, I, um, I see various concepts that you chose to highlight. Um, and, you know, from purpose to culture, to leadership, talent, creativity, and collaboration and innovation. Um, I'm sure there are other concepts that you left out. Um, I guess, help me understand what you put in uh, and why, and what you may be left out and why. For example, I, um, there were some things that seemed very obvious to me, either because I'd come across business thinking that seemed very influential, or I knew of general counsel who were great examples of using these concepts in practice. I would say that in, when I use the term business skills, I should probably caveat it with it's not the sort of, it's not like reading a balance sheet. It's, it's not those sort of business skills. It's more of the bigger picture, human-centered business skills. But, you know, still, these are really the things that are shaping companies now. They're the things we're reading about in Harvard Business Review. Um, and they're the things that, you know, ex all executives are grappling with. So it was, it was a mixture of being things that I was interested in, things that I thought there's some great writing on this that is quite accessible as well. Um, and also knowing of examples that would illustrate it. Um, some of the concepts that aren't specifically um, carved out as, as, as sections in the book, but do intertwine to it are ideas like empathy, 
um, inclusivity, um, you know, they're, they're sort of secondary themes. And I could, I could have made them primary themes, but you just get to a point where you sort of think, well, you know, I've got to call it, otherwise this is going to become like this massive tome that will go on forever and ever. But yeah, um, it, I would say there's a real focus. And I, I think that, you know, generally research, wider business research backs this up, that it's these human centre skills that we need to focus on. And that's, that's for a number of reasons, not, not, to, to, put a, 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 to put it bluntly, is the fact that, you know, some of the more technical process-driven skills are going to be automated and it's going to make sense for them to be automated. Many of them already are. So what gives us our competitive advantage as humans? It's those human-centered skills. So really, I think those are the ones that we should be teaching younger lawyers. We should be developing in all of the professions and understanding their value. And there's a whole wealth of research to back that up. So, um, yeah, I just sort of felt that was incredibly important to have that as the center of the book. I'm with you. The um, lawyers are humans first. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And our clients are humans first. Yeah. And I think as well, you know, if you understand the human-centered skills as this great area of opportunity, and actually ones that I think many lawyers have natural aptitude for, it sort of totally changed that narrative around the future of law, which can sometimes be a bit like, oh my goodness, the machines are going to take our jobs away and the robot lawyers are going to take over, which actually I think that needs to be reframed as more of an opportunity. It's going to be great because people are going to be able to do more interesting, more st st strategic um, and probably much more satisfying work within, within companies and within law firms and, and, you know, other suppliers as well. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, that the technology gives you a space to fall in love with law. Yeah. Um, and yeah. really enjoy your practice, make it sustainable and, and really reconnect with the reason why you went to law school in the first place. Yeah. Otherwise, you sort of lost in the daily grind. And, yeah. and, and if you don't, you know, if you have to, you must. But if you don't have to, you must not. <laughs> um, and you, you can definitely go back to that reason of why you yeah. went to law school in the first place. Um, yeah. What I love about your book is the numerous examples and case studies, kind of like, you know, the Harvard Business uh, Review um, that provides kind of examples to business professionals. And that's kind of how I see this book. Um, tell me how, you know, why was that important and why was it important to include those examples and how did you select legal departments and legal leaders that you wanted to feature in your book? Yeah, I mean, it. Um, I think going back to my background, you know, having a background in drama um, of the creative arts, um, you know, often what you're doing when you get a play is you take an idea, which are maybe the words on the page or whatever, and then you have to make it an actuality, you have to do it. And that's always been something that sort of informed my writing practice over the years. So it was very key for me to bring it to the book, the idea that we're not just talking conceptually. And I think for people reading it, you know, sometimes it's like it's all very well hearing that somebody has done X, Y and Z. But if you want to emulate that, 
well, how do I do it? So it felt very important for me to have these more detailed case studies where I could explain exactly how a particular legal department did something and also the challenges they faced because it wasn't always easy for them. You know, you can come up against roadblocks or, you know, um, uh, you know, different ways of thinking and, and things you've got to get through. So just, I think, sharing ideas and sharing how things were done would be very valuable. And it just goes back to, to the root of, of my background in, in sort of taking ideas and, and putting them into practice. So that was that was really, really important for me. Um, in terms of how I chose the legal departments or the examples, it was probably you know, people I had come across in my career who I just thought had an interesting story to tell or were somewhat in my mind when I was writing the book. Um, for example, the talent chapter features Schlumberger, the um, oil services company. And when Kevin Van Tonder, their then GC of operations, told me about this talent um, strategy they were working on, it was just one of those moments where I literally had a shiver down my spine and I thought, this is so exciting. This is so sort of different, but not that different. Taking lots of ideas that were in play, but sort of putting them together in a new and creative way. And I was just like thinking, wow, I, I really want to share this within the book because I think it's really exciting. And it, it wasn't a story I had heard told that often. Um, you know, some of them are stories that have been told previously, like DXC Technologies. They're, what they've done has been referenced in other legal publications. But I think that the, the very fact that practically, you know, most legal magazines or journals have quite tight space constraints, it, they were, the story hadn't been able to be told in quite such depth as you can in a book. So I thought it was a great opportunity to delve into a bit more detail with, with Bill Deckelman about all the drivers and how they actually did it rather than just referencing it in a, a thousand word article. Absolutely. And it, it, the real characters give a nonfiction book a lot of um, juice and uh, excitement. <laughs> So yeah. I, I absolutely love that story. Um, what I thought was really interesting uh, was the chapter on creativity. Uh, that is not a chapter you see in legal books very often. I notice this because I, I've been a huge advocate of, of creativity in legal practice and thinking out of the box. Um, and I, I blame my seven-year art training for this kind of um, divergent thinking, but would love for you to explain that chapter and kind of how you got to even having that chapters and what are sort of um, main um, lessons? Yeah, well, I mean, part of it was um, realizing when I, when I thought about what I bring to the table as somebody who now works as a consultant in, in the legal profession, I began to realize that what I really brought was as my USP was my creative background, that being able to think differently. And I increasingly started to read in Harvard Business Review and other, other business publications that, you know, the way that creative thinking is being valued more and more in business. Um, and, you know, given that innovation is so key in law, 
innovation doesn't just happen in a vacuum. You need creative thinking, creative ideas to actually come up with innovative ideas, innovative processes. You know, um, there's there's a quote I use was, you know, it's like creativity is the idea, innovation is the realization of that idea. And I thought to myself, you know, it actually makes quite a lot of sense to include creativity as a section. Otherwise, we're, we're actually missing out quite an important stage in the innovation process. And everyone accepts that, you know, the legal profession needs to get more innovative, but, you know, there's a process around becoming more innovative. And a key part of that is training people to be comfortable with having divergent ideas, making connections that, that really literally think outside of the box and might bring in ideas from radically different um, disciplines or different professions. So I thought actually going out there and looking for examples that conformed to this was a little bit different, a little bit radical, but it seemed the more I thought about it, the more it made perfect sense. And, and I was also kind of pleased to be able to um, include a, a little nod to my own creative background as well. So let's talk about your creative background. Tell me more. I, lo I love talking to you. I actually, I think I, I've had 10 guests on my podcast and I think I've been able to convince four of them to share um, their art passion. Um, I now had somebody who had a, a passion in photography. I've had somebody who's a jeweler. I have somebody who is also writing a, a legal drama piece on the side. And I had somebody who loves to, to write for recreation. So what is your <laughs> art passion? Yeah, well, I suppose it's, um, it's changed over the years. I did my PhD in drama um, and also started teaching uh, drama to, to university level students. Um, after I completed my PhD, I went on to teach full time in, in, in a number of universities. Um, so I was very privileged to have the contact with, um, you know, number of really creative young people and the teaching experience, but also as well, um, you know, there's a, a huge push in um, universities to research. And if you're in a subject like drama or performance, you can also fulfill part of your research um, criteria by actual practical research. So, you know, creating a performance, um, being part of a performance. So unlike some of my friends who actually went in to be professional actors and had all the pain and, um, you know, lack of work and lack of money that, that goes with that, that, that career path generally. Um, I was able to, you know, be part of other academics' performance pieces, you know, create some of my own performance pieces with this, this nice sort of safety blanket of having an academic job. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it's been a, a mix of things from actually being performing in Jacobean tragedies to creating my own performance pieces, which were often inspired by um, performance artists like Marina Abramovich um, or Cozy Fanny Tutti, um, who, and um, you know, a friend of mine actually created a performance piece that was a recreation of um, one of the Viennese Axionis um, performances in the 1960s, um, which was based on Greek drama. So that was quite a, an intense experience. So having these, you know, wonderful 
range of different performance experiences was um, was really interesting. Um, and and I think you know one of the analogies that kept coming back to me with um, law was the fact that often you know if you're doing something with a university drama department you don't have a whole lot of budget or resource. So you sometimes get these amazing stage directions. And I think one of the examples I use in the book is um, if, you, if, if anybody's familiar with Greek drama, ancient Greek drama in um, Euripides' Medea at the end, um, there's this scene of, of Helios, the sun god's chariot coming down and taking Medea and the bodies of her children up to um, you know um, Mount Olympus, um, which is great, but you know how do you create that if you've got no money and you know just a few bits of wood and, and and what have you? So, to me, there was a really interesting analogy with the process one goes through in creating a piece of theatre with limited resources to what like most in-house legal departments have to do. <laughs> how do you reach the Mount Olympus and how? That is a great question. I love that you asked. <laughs> that is so great. Thank you for that. The Mount Olympus in house. I love it with limited resources. So how do you get there? <laughs> well, with a, with a lot of um, thinking differently, figuring out different ways of doing things, maybe um, relying on others <laughs> to get to you a bit of resourcing as well. But, but yeah, I think a big part of it is, um, you know, there is that saying, um, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think that's been the case for lots of in-house legal teams, um, which is also an important message. I think you mentioned before, Olga, that, you know, the book isn't just about really big legal teams. It's about quite, the, there are some quite small legal teams. And, and the case study I use in creativity is, is a big, it's part of a big legal team, but the team itself is quite small. So I think this, you know, these ideas are not just the preserve of large legal teams with lots of people and potentially a lot more resource. I really wanted to get the message across is that, you know, anybody can take these ideas and use them. Um, and it's, it's more about the mindset as opposed to, you know, that you need 150 people to to start using creativity and how you approach thing. I mean, it, it can literally be done if you're a team of one or you're a team of two or a team of three or whatever. Thank you for sharing your love for arts. I, 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 I do love arts. I have uh, training in art and absolutely enjoy it. And I, I blame arts for um, the um, adventures I had had in law. And frankly, the only place in law that I felt that was welcoming to uh, different and innovative is in-house. So um, yeah. I absolutely think it's a critical skill. I should be taught uh, intentionally in law school. Um, and you don't have to be artistically creative to be legally creative, yeah. to be a creative business person. Those are, you know, those kind of similar skills, but not necessarily the same skills. Um, and you definitely see some creativity in house. And I just, it just, it makes my heart go beat a little faster when I see it. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely. But, um, you know, you've clearly talked to a lot of general counsel and legal department leaders and in-house practitioners. I, I guess in, in, in writing, researching your book, I guess what is the most surprising thing that you have seen or heard or found? 
Well, I suppose that the, the, the biggest surprises to me were, were how much so many people were already using these ideas, but sometimes didn't necessarily call it being creative if we're going to focus on the creativity. But when you actually map it against how creativity is described in relation to business, people are like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm already doing that. So that's, that's great. Um, I think in writing the book and putting the information together, what was really surprising to me, um, and this was something that came out as, as I was creating the book, was how, how much all of these ideas were intersected with each other. That, you know, I, I sort of started out writing them thinking, oh, this one is over here, and then there's this one, and it's more of a linear progression, but actually realizing it's much more like a number of Venn diagrams. And, you know, I say in the introduction to the book that while I've ordered it in a particular way, it doesn't necessarily have to be read in that way. And it can be dipped in and out of depending on where your interest lies. And it's, it's, it's not a linear narrative at all. Um, and in a way, once you start think, but you, you know, you'll also find that once you start thinking about one of these concepts, the other ones will start to come into play because they have to. You know, it's very hard to think about purpose in isolation from culture. You can't really think about either of those things without thinking about how you're leading and who your leaders are as well. Um, then when you start thinking about that, well, you can't lead unless you've got people who are going to follow you. That's your talent coming in. Um, what you need to make all of those zing is creativity. Um, you know, creativity works really well with collaboration. And when all of those things are coming together, that's when you're going to get the secret source of innovation. Um, and, you know, I think that was very, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion of innovation these days in the legal profession, sometimes without people really sort of understanding that you need to put in quite a lot of legwork to actually come up with innovative ideas. You need to sort of ensure that people are being inspired or are, you know, in the right culture where they can feel innovative. It's not just something they can just turn on like that. It's, it's a process. I just love how you just connected all the chapters and the, <laughs> and, and how they really one lead to another. That, that was a very beautiful explanation. Thank you for that. You're not a practicing lawyer, and I don't think you went to law school. No, am, I, am I right? In the profession where the line between lawyers and everyone else, and I'm deliberately not using the, the term non-lawyer, yeah. let's just say the rest of the world, the rest of the world is very bright. You making observations and study of lawyers. Tell me if that gives you an advantage or disadvantage. What are your thoughts? Have you thought about this? I'm sure you thought about this issue. I would say it's actually given me an advantage in being able to look at things a bit differently. Um, you know, maybe um, take a bit of a broader perspective and, and, you know, to some extent have a little bit of a detachment because I haven't done these things. Um, I mean, having said that, I've been around the legal profession for so long. I do have a good sense of, of how You're an honorary lawyer, <laughs> <laughs> observing yeah. lawyers in the wild. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, yeah, it's a bit like being an anthropologist, maybe. But yeah, I think I think one of the really interesting changes that's coming, and you're definitely, I think, seeing this in certain areas of the law. Um, and maybe this is another reason why it was a logical gravitation to me to work more with in-house lawyers is I've never felt a particular lack in not being a lawyer, um, particularly working uh, with in, in the in-house uh, side of the profession. Um, and I suppose that's logical because essentially people who move in-house, I think are probably less wedded to the hierarchy of the law firm are less wedded to being completely focused on the technical legal side. And certainly people who, who become you know, general counsel, I think they're often thinking a bit differently, thinking in quite a big picture way. Um, I think a really exciting change is, is the, the growing recognition that law as a profession is going to need diverse insights and that's going to be diversity in the traditional sense of, of the word in terms of you know gender ethnicity sexuality just people who have different life experiences but also people who have different backgrounds as well you know there's not really you know ceos don't necessarily have one career path to become a ceo um, and i think that you know it's it's interesting that you know, we are beginning to see a lot more debate about the lawyer, non-lawyer hierarchy and the realisation that subject matter experts are what's needed, whether that's somebody who's got legal training or who doesn't have legal training. Um, and I just think that's incredibly healthy. Um, and I mean, I think because we're in such a position of change in the legal profession, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I just recently wrote a piece on LinkedIn, which was a bit of a, a meditation on Blade Runner, where I do feel that the whole role of the replicant, the non-human in Blade Runner is actually to throw a light on the issues that humanity has. And I, I think there's analogy with law, you know, will a focus on what a lawyer isn't and those people who have skills that are perhaps weren't traditionally valued in law or certainly in legal education, will that actually show us the path to create the lawyer of the future that, you know, you don't have to throw one out, but you can bring more in and it's actually allowing you to critique, you know, what else we need and how we need to think differently. Yeah, I find that by including other people in your legal department, allowing data scientists to be part of it, the engineers and technologists to be part of it, the financial professionals to be part of it, you also open up opportunities for lawyers. Yeah. Um, I think it's not surprising that you now see increasing number of general counsel become CEOs. Yeah. That path has not been traditionally there. And yeah. it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's widespread, but it is getting to be not a completely crazy idea as it used to be in the past. Um, as we accept others, others get to know us and understand the value we bring. And in the age where safety and, and, um, and compliance and complexity is, you know, are predominant themes, lawyers have quite a lot to contribute so I, I, you know, it's not just lawyers letting people in, but it is also lawyers uh, being considered and included in other conversations and opportunities 
And that kind of exchange, as opposed to closed systems, that yeah. really changes in the way law is, is delivered and, and, and consumed and the expectations. And I, and I really love seeing the in-house lawyers leading that change. I think you're right on point there. Yeah. And I think just to look at some examples in the book, in, in the case studies in purpose, the case studies in creativity, um, the case studies in culture, lots of the in-house teams were actually working quite closely with other areas of the business. And the fact that they were all seeing that they were speaking the same language can in many, in some cases actually transformed the relationship of the legal department with the wider business. It's suddenly like, you know, they're not lawyers over there, they're colleagues who are thinking about exactly the same things we're thinking about. So I think, yeah. I think it's just, you know. When you are solving problems, yeah. um, you know, you're no longer a lawyer. At that no. point, you are a different skill set. And yeah. you bring something to, unique to the table and everyone is united to solve a problem or to, you know, to address an opportunity. So, um, and at that point, you're, you're no longer just a lawyer. At that yeah. point, you are a contributor that, yeah. that helps to push it forward. And that really changes um, the, the conversations and the outcome. Um, we're coming to the end. I've thoroughly enjoyed this book and this conversation and, uh, I really, I love the way you think. Um, I, uh, we, we're completely aligned about the future of law and in-house profession and their role in it. Um, if you were um, a young lawyer or perhaps even a seasoned lawyer who is looking to pivot, mm -hmm. uh, what would be your advice? Where would you recommend um, that folks who want to pivot or enter this profession focus? I think some of it is really approaching the profession if you're entering it or, or indeed if you're looking to pivot with the fact that, you know, there are a lot more opportunities open now and sort of maybe realizing that, you know, legal training can be a great grounding, but it can also lead you to other things and maybe not to shut off those other innate skills that frankly, I think many lawyers have, you know, there, there's been research done that shows that lawyers actually have a great aptitude for creative thinking and big picture thinking. So just allowing um, your natural abilities, your natural talents to not become totally subsumed to the practice of law. And I think, I think for somebody who's a bit more seasoned, you know, just make contact. There are lots of us out there who are exploring the boundaries of what the legal profession will be. There's groups like the Bionic Lawyer, the O-Shaped Lawyer in the UK, um, mm. and, uh, you know, plenty of groups in the US. And I think that, you know, there's a tribe of us who are thinking differently around law. So, you know, just make contact. And I think together we can actually build something um, even more fabulous. Catherine, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I even more thoroughly enjoyed this book, Business Thinking Practice for In-House Counsel, Taking Your Seat at the Table. Fantastic book. Thank you for sharing your insight. And I look forward to your webinar and maybe having another conversation in the near future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Olga. <laughs>